0: Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, your weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. This is now episode number 307. My name is Camden Busey. I am the pastor of Hope Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Grayslake, Illinois. We've got a great panel, an international panel today, but let me introduce to you first our regular. We have Jared Oliphant, who is a regional coordinator for Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, but he's working out of Charlotte, North Carolina.
1: Welcome back, Jared. It's great to have you on. Thanks, Camden. Great to be on this one.
0: We are very pleased to welcome to the program a great group of guys here. Uh, We're going to be speaking about a wonderful book, an edited volume. And we have uh, two of the editors and contributors and another contributor. Let me introduce to you first everyone, one that you are familiar with. We have with us Dr. Carl Truman, who is the pastor of Cornerstone OPC in Ambler, Pennsylvania, as well as now the Paul Willie Professor of Church History at Westminster Theological Seminary. Welcome back, Carl. It's great to have you on today. It's great to be back, Camden. And we are very pleased to welcome, for the very first time, to the program first, uh, we have David Gibson, who is a minister of Trinity Church in Aberdeen, Scotland. Uh, Previously, he served as a staff worker for the Religious and Theological Studies Fellowship and as an assistant minister in High Church Hilton, Aberdeen. But he is uh, joining us here from across the pond. Welcome to the program, David. It's great to have you.
2: Thanks very much. It's great to be
0: talking to you. Yeah, and we're pleased to welcome also Jonathan Gibson, who is currently a PhD candidate in Hebrew Studies at Cambridge University, but he also studied previously at Moore Theological College in Sydney, Australia. We have many friends there. Welcome to the program, Jonathan. It's great to have you on the panel.
3: Thanks for having us, Camden. Absolutely.
0: Today we're going to be speaking about an excellent book here on Uh, Limited Atonement, or better, Definite Atonement. The book here titled, From Heaven He Came and Sought Her. Definite Atonement in Historical, Biblical, Theological, and Pastoral Perspective. It is edited by David and Jonathan Gibson. It's published by Crossway, and uh, Dr. Truman has a contribution in here, as well as many, many other uh, well-known and uh, superb theologians and uh, pastors. We're going to open this up today as we discuss this important subject. But before we do so, let me pause and mention that Christ the Center is listener-supported. We do want to take the opportunity to point you at our website, at reformedforum.org slash donate to help us so that we can continue to produce and distribute all of our programs free of charge. We are a non-profit organization in the United States so we do encourage you to visit us and help us uh, to do what we love to do, putting good reform theology in your hands, in your ears, on your iPods, iPhones, wherever it may be. So visit us online at reformedforum.org slash donate today. We thank you so much for your support of everything we do at Reformed Forum and this particular program, Christ the Center. Well, I want to begin, uh, gentlemen, uh, just by asking you about um, the genesis of this project. I know in your foreword, you you mentioned the help that you've had um, from Justin Taylor and all the folks at Crossway. You had... Uh, high machinations at one point of maybe having a a multi-volume work, and it's been honed down into this very nice, and but yet thorough, single volume. How did you come to the doctrine of definite atonement in your own lives? And then what also brought you to uh, decide and and to have the desire to edit uh, this volume?
3: I think we would say we come to the doctrine, Camden, um, via different routes. Um, David can probably share with you how he came to it, but uh, my own personal journey, uh, I was brought up in a brethren assembly, very godly um, community who uh, nurtured us in Christ, but it was, uh, uh, I wouldn't say it was fully Arminian, but it was sort of heading in that direction, Uh, but it was only during a gap year in South Africa between school and university when I went out uh, to do some short term missionary work for a year. And I met a a Baptist pastor who very kindly um, sort of took me under his wing and started to teach me the doctrines of grace uh, without actually calling them the five points of Calvinism. And so it was really in that gap year in 1996 that I became quite sort of taken by uh, the doctrines of grace and over time reading various uh, books uh, sort of came to believe in, uh, in the definite atonement Uh, that Christ made on the cross. So that that would be my uh, journey, and it only sort of became more finely tuned uh, during some of my years at uh, Moore College. But I'll talk about that in a wee minute, but David might want to share how he came to believe in the doctrine.
2: Yeah, I I actually can't remember when I actually did start believing it. What I do remember is when I first heard about it, which was actually... Uh, in one of Carl's classes, Carl taught me when I was an undergraduate at the university of Nottingham all the way back in 1995 when Carl had hair. <laughs> um, and we, uh, at, the, at, at that, around that time, Carl was off to, uh, Grand Rapids. I think it was for a sabbatical work, which is when he was working on the claims of truth book, the John Owen book. Um, and it was in a class of Carl's that I first, or at least that's my memory, that's the first time I ever actually heard about the doctrine. I was going to a church at the time where the, the pastor, who's still there, has been an excellent, faithful minister, Peter Lewis, a uh, church in, in Nottingham called Cornerstone Church, and Peter Lewis was a contributor to a popular level book called Chosen for Good that uh, was, a, uh, as I say, a kind of popular uh, articulation of the five points, and at some point I remember speaking to Peter about having heard about this uh, perplexing doctrine and he lent me that book chosen for good and I guess it must have been that particular book that had an impact Um, but I I think probably by the time I finished my undergraduate studies I was uh, I was convinced of it and like Johnny said then it's been a sort of Uh, process of developing deepening understanding ever since just looking at the different sections
1: of the book and especially the contributors can you take us through uh, briefly just what it was like to assemble the people who are contributing the topics um, what you wanted to include uh, just how this idea came about and then um, what it was like to actually just get it off the ground
3: well it goes back to 2007 it's been six years in the pipeline I wrote a, an essay at Moore College that uh, grappled with the double payment argument, <clears throat> whether or not that was a legitimate way to argue for limited atonement or definite atonement. And in, prepare, in studying for that essay, I said to David when he was visiting in Australia one time that I felt there was a big gap in recent scholarship that presented a really comprehensive defense Uh, a winsome defense of definite atonement. It was sort of there in the systematic theologies, it was there in passing in some books on the atonement, but there wasn't really a a comprehensive penetrating analysis since John Owen's, you know, classic uh, the death of death in the death of Christ. So that was sort of the the genesis of the idea um, to to write a book. Um, Then we sort of batted it back and forward um, David sort of always going over the top with things. Came up with a thirty-seven chapter proposal, <laughs> and um, uh, we sort of—I think Carl, you were one of the first people we approached to just ask, would you be interested in writing in it? And uh, you very kindly said you would, and a few you others.
4: Asked
2: were, how much you get paid? That's
3: right. <laughs> <laughs> we brought, yeah, and I have a complete inability to say
4: no. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: And uh, Tom Schreiner and a few others showed real interest and said, this sounds like a very exciting project. And so we put a proposal together, sent it to Justin Taylor at Crossway, and uh, he showed uh, good interest and said, you know, fine, uh, fine-tune fine the 37-chapter <laughs> proposal down to something around 20 chapters. Uh, so we did that, and um, we started getting contributors on board. I think it probably took us about a full year to get everyone on board and then over time even one or two had to drop out with other commitments and we had to replace them so it really kicked off in about late 2008 everyone was on board they were given three years to write their chapters um, it was supposed to sort of all come in around 2011 but um, the Paul Willey professor in Westminster you know, had other things on his plate and a few <laughs> others so it, it the essays sort of came together 2012. And then we were editing for about a year amidst our other commitments. Um, so that's that's sort of how it all came about. Uh, it, it has been a huge project. It's 700 pages, 285,000 words. Uh, but we really wanted to take our time with it um, to get the best contributors we could and make it the highest quality and most comprehensive treatment of this subject um, that would sort of last for decades to come, and even until the rapture,
4: mm.
3: <laughs> will that be <laughs> Just before a modifiable- the
4: tribulation or after it?
0: So. <laughs> I think by 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 compiling all of this work and editing, they've already experienced the tribulation. <laughs>
4: that's right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, I. I thought that um, if you look at the table of contents, um, that just the way that it's laid out, I thought was just so helpful. Uh, for the listeners, the, the book is, is divided. Um, you start out with uh, Definite Atonement in Church History. There's a section on Definite Atonement in the Bible. There's another section on systematic theology, and then finally a section on pastoral practice. And maybe we can, just to start off, um, get a little bit into the church history section since we have uh, you on, Carl. And I want to get into your essay, but um, can you give us a – Carl, can you give us a little bit of an overview of – how this um notion of limited atonement whether that's even proper to you know as a name um started as as a topic that was being debated uh in the reformation and and then on
4: well i think it's limited atonement is a somewhat unfortunate misnomer it has Profoundly negative connotations for a start, because it implies that one is intentionally limiting something, and that doesn't sound like a good thing when one 's talking about god 's grace and the nature of salvation the The debate really, as it pops up, for example, with John Owen, is is much more to do with the efficacy of the atonement. Does the atonement achieve in and of itself that for which it was? intended. So a character like Owen is, is less concerned, I think, about trying to limit the grace of God and more concerned about talking about the power of the atonement uh, and connecting Christ's work on the cross to his continued intercession at the, the right hand of the Father. What is interesting, I think, about this book at this particular moment in church history, of course, is that the the whole issue of the limited atonement or particular redemption or efficacious atonement, which, whatever term you wish to use for it. it, it isn't just about does the atonement achieve that for which it was intended. It also connects to discussions about the penal nature of Christ's satisfaction uh, and um, also the substitutionary nature. Of Christ's satisfaction, and all of those kind of debates that we're facing today, I think you can find them in the 16th and 17th centuries, are not hashed out, perhaps with quite the same language and detail that we might do today. But they were issues for Calvin uh, onwards in in the Reformed tradition.
1: Yeah, that's helpful, and, and I see also there's. Um... And uh, Jonathan, you may w- want to comment on this or, or anybody really, but there's a chapter from Michael Haken, um definite Atonement in the Ancient Church. So obviously, he's going to argue for some kind of precedent that's before the Reformation. Um, can you explain a little bit about what he's trying to argue for in that chapter? And uh, we won't have to go through all the chapters, but um, just based on Carl's comments, particularly interested in the pre-Reformation precedent for this.
2: One of the other contributors in the book is a, a chap called Raymond Blacketer. And Blacketer has a a comment in it's in another book uh, that was it Frank James and Charles Hill edited the Glory of the Atonement. He has a comment somewhere about limited atonement being uh, Johnny. You maybe know the exact words. It's a limited atonement being it's like a minority report running uh, through the whole of church history. It's uh, it's there. It's frequently ambiguous, but it is nevertheless a trajectory that is present. Uh, you know, really from the earliest church onwards. Um, So Haken is is taking that, uh, looking at that as a a thesis and looking at particular uh, patristic figures. You've got someone like Jerome saying that on Matthew uh, 20, verse 28, that Jesus doesn't say he gave his life for all, but for many, that is for all those who would believe. Um, And then following that, you get uh, medieval texts, uh, the Glossa Ordinaria, which specifies things like the many, as those predestined to life. Um, so Haken and Hogg, uh, the chap David Hogg, the chapter that follows Haken's in the book, aren't uh, trying to say that there is a full-orbed, complete, uh, you know, Synod of Dort-like understanding of definite atonement present in the mm-hmm. early church. But there is nevertheless precedence for it. And I think one of the, I mean, uh, one of the interesting things, Carl uh, Bart has a comment that, Church history is the history of the exegesis of the Word of God. And what Haken and Hogg show, and Raymond Blacketer and the other historical chapters, is that it's not, when you're looking at the issue of definite atonement, it's not as simple as saying, well, we've got the Bible, and that's what we're going to look at uh, in modern day era. But everybody else beforehand was working with some kind of abstract theological constructs. Actually, from the earliest church onwards, people were wrestling with biblical texts. How do we put this particular text together with this text? What do we do with First Timothy two four? Does it mean every single person? Does it mean all classes of humanity and so on? And I think Haken and Hog and those those early chapters in the book are just trying to raise the issue, if you like, and say there has always been debate about what these particular words mean, these particular texts mean, and there have been very early precedents for the kind of full-flowering uh, approach that you see in definite atonement around uh, Reformation and post-Reformation time onwards.
3: Mm.
0: That's something, you know, Hogg, Hogg's uh, chapter is is significant here. It's titled Sufficient for All, Efficient for Some, and that often gets brought up in in the discussions with four-point Calvinists, if we want to use that phrase. Um, and I believe it was Spurgeon. I'm not, I'm not sure if it was, but I believe it was he that had the, the illustration that he thought that uh, the notion of limited atonement, really everyone limits the atonement one way or the other. Uh, but for him, to speak of particular redemption was to liken Christ's atonement to a narrow bridge that would uh, span the entire chasm, to speak of an unlimited atonement in the sense that the four-point Calvinist would mean or the Emeraldian or something like that would be to have a very wide bridge that would only span a part of the way and would need to be supplemented by some other work or, or either by God or by believers. What are some of the hang-ups uh, present day, but also from church history, that have been difficult for people to to grasp the notion of a definite atonement? Is it strictly some of the verses that we encounter in Scripture, or are there other theological factors that uh, play a role in making it difficult for people to understand the Reformed doctrine?
4: I think there are significant pastoral concerns Mm. that are often posed to the doctrine. One of them, can one preach Christ died for you to a, a mixed audience of believers and unbelievers does limited atonement not inhibit the, the confidence with which one can proclaim the death of Christ? And then I think at a, a more, one might say, one-to-one pastoral counseling kind of level, perhaps, is one able to point those who doubt of their salvation to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ as, as the objective basis for assurance. Now those would be two objections that that frequently pop up in concerns about limited atonement.
3: There's also um, people like R.T. Kendall who have just said that the doctrine just seems to fly in the face of clear biblical texts that speak Mm. of Christ's death for many, for all, for the world. So so at at one level, people just say it's an exegetical problem. Like, aren't there these texts (laughs) that go against the doctrine? Um, Others will say it's more theological. Um, what about God's love? Does this mean God doesn't love everyone the same way or doesn't love everyone? Um, there's those kind of issues. I think Bruce McCormack says that if limited atonement were true, we would all very likely despair of our salvation. So you've got the whole assurance issues that crop up. And we actually have a chapter on that. Sinclair Ferguson um, deals with John MacLeod Campbell, the uh, Scottish um, church minister who was um, tried for heresy and he sort of raised this aspect of limited atonement robs the Christian of their assurance. Um, so you have textual issues, exegetical, uh, theological, and as Carl says, you know, pastoral uh, issues going on there. And again, that's why we wanted to deal with each of those areas in the book to try and counter any problems people might have with the doctrine. Mm-hmm.
0: No, and I'd like to st- to stick with that the the macro structure of the book and seeing here that we're still in church history, I would like to ask uh Carl but but also the uh, you other gentlemen just if if these were the same types of issues that were experienced in not only the ancient church but then especially in the Reformation we have chapters here on calvin Beza um we speak about the Synod of dort which. Course we would speak about on this topic, but then also we'll get to John Owen. Um, were, was the issue of definite atonement as multifaceted now, and as you've tried to capture in this book, was it this? Was it similar back in uh, the time of the Reformation?
4: Yes, I think the the complexity of the issue of Christ's atonement has always generated a, a variety of questions and and challenges. Um, you know, in the 16th century, you had the challenge posed by the Socinians, who essentially wanted to reduce Christ's atonement to a great example of an obedient life, culminating in an obedient, loving death, as an example of of what Christians should should do themselves. And in response to that, you have some very, very sophisticated uh, articulations of what we would now call penal substitutionary atonement. That, by the very nature of how they understand the penal sanction, and the substitutionary nature of that atonement, pushed towards what we call limited atonement. Uh, there are also some problems, I think, that pop up that are perhaps more distinctive to the 17th century. Richard Baxter, for example, objects to limited atonement for a number of reasons, but one of them is he feels that if uh, salvation is objectively accomplished for the elect in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, then the moral imperatives of the Christian life, the the need to do good works, is effectively pulled away. And Baxter is working very much against the specific background of his own experience in the English Civil War, or to use the politically correct terminology, the War of the Three Kingdoms, where he's seen what he regards as sectarian antinomians running amok in in the army, and the, the need to produce a pastoral theology which will prevent that from happening. So when he engages John Owen, for example, he sees John Owen as the, the polite face of radical antinomianism, and his concern with Owen's understanding of the atonement is, not so much assurance, not so much limiting God's grace as it is providing a platform for radical antinomian behavior. So it's, it, it's a complicated issue. Some of the issues are the same today. Some of them are really quite different.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, what were the uh, concerns of the, uh, of the um, Arminians and the followers of Jacobus Arminius? What were they so concerned about and eventually that led to the canons of Dort, which has really led to the, the acronym that m- most of us really <laughs> use to summarize uh, many of these teachings, that of TULIP.
4: Well, some of the concerns were exegetical. We've already touched on those, that uh, limited atonement did not seem to do justice to what was regarded as the plain teaching of Scripture. Uh, some of them connected to an understanding of justification. Uh, that limited atonement in the way that was being put forward by the Reformed was seen to connect to the, the, the imputation of both the active and the passive righteousness of Christ to individual believers. Uh, and that was seen to to cut away the, the moral imperatives. Uh, some of it was an objection to the whole notion of predestination as pre- really making God the author of sin uh, the idea of election and reprobation as uh, subverting a biblical doctrine of God. So again, from the Armenian perspective, it's not a single issue. I think there were a variety, a complex of issues out there that made the doctrine objectionable.
0: Uh, Jonathan or, or David, was there anything that um, really stuck out to you in the church history section, maybe surprising or, or particularly fascinating that you thought was useful for the present discussion?
3: One of the things, that, well, I wasn't so much surprised by because we'd sort of put the proposal together yeah. <laughs> in order to have some of the chapters. But what David was saying with that quote from Raymond Blackatary, he speaks of a particular and a defined trajectory of salvation running from the early church into the Reformation <laughs> and on uh, up to you know present day. And I think that's what struck me as I read Haken's chapter in Hogs was that there really is a clearly defined trajectory there. It, it's not a doctrine that arises, you know, in a brand new, uh, I, you know, it's not created at the Reformation or, or with Calvin or with Biza. It really is present, not as David said, in a full-orbed way, but it that trajectory is running uh, as a strong thread all the way through church history. And it just comes to greater maturation, if you like, uh, in the Reformation and post-Reformation theology. So that was one of the things that struck me. The second thing was that as I read Haken's chapter and as he shows how some of the early church fathers deal with the texts that say Christ died for many, etc. What you have there are the seeds of the exegetical... Argument that all does not always mean everyone; that all means all kinds of people, uh, and that that was something that stood out to me was that that those sorts of arguments we use today, um, you know, um, what is it? All yeah, without think- exception, is that right? But not all mm-hmm. without distinction. That's what I want. All without exception. All without distinction. That that distinction of the two ways to interpret the word all is actually present. In the early church fathers, um, it's not actually a, a you know a position of commentators or scholastic Reformed theologians in the 17th century. It's actually there in the early church fathers, though they don't use those categories themselves. If that makes sense.
2: So that I two yeah that stood out to me for for me. I think um, and this is a, you know if I can if I'm allowed to go into uh, publicity mode here. Um, <laughs> I I think Raymond Blacketer's chapter. We've mentioned his quotation, but I think his chapter in the book. Uh, it's called "Blaming Biza, The Development of Definite Atonement in the Reformed Tradition." And <clears throat> that particular chapter, I think, is a is a exemplary model of how to do close historical text analysis. Um, he's located his particular argument is located as part of a bigger issue of uh, which I guess is. Fairly commonplace or, or well understood, the Calvin against the Calvinist school. Uh, he he's taking up the the argument that basically, you know, you have Calvin, this warm Christocentric uh, theologian who is completely untainted by scholastic evils and held to an unlimited atonement, and then you have uh, Be- Beza, the man almost literally in the black hat who follows after him and twists and distorts. Uh, Calvin's, you know, warm Christocentric theology into this kind of arid scholastic mold. And that's part of a bigger uh, issue in scholarship that's been going on for quite a while. But Blacketer's very careful. It's it's the kind of essay, I suppose, that, to be honest, won't uh, set the pulse racing for many people. Um, But actually, it's the kind of essay that when you just slowly work through his reading of the original languages, his close work on texts, his long Detailed footnote showing that he's engaged with all sorts of different angles on this question and showing that you cannot force a divide between Calvin and Beza on this particular issue, even though that's not to claim Calvin and Beza were identical, there's still room for development and continuity and so on that that to me it wasn't it wasn't in terms of your question it wasn't a surprise but i I, I read it and thought, wow, this is uh, a very impressive close uh, Close, closely argued piece of work that I hope uh, will continue to be another uh, chopping of the axe at the, at the root of the tree of this kind of Calvin versus the Calvinist divide.
1: I know we have to move on at some point to the definite atonement in the Bible, but just to quickly touch on, Carl, your your essay and the, some of the particulars, um, really appreciated connecting the atonement and everything involved there with the covenant of, of redemption, um, the pactum salutis as it's often called, uh, particularly in Owen and how healthy helpful he is in… Um, connecting even those to Christ's uh, Christ mediator, Christ's priestly office, um, and then distinguishing you know, the personal application of justification from what's going on, um, even in redemptive history, and then before that um, in theology proper, in the, in the pactum and the covenant of redemption. But um, can you just briefly summarize what you were trying to do in connecting uh, this topic to the covenant of redemption and eternity?
4: What I was trying to do was demonstrate the, the complexity of the doctrine. And what I mean by that is how the doctrine of atonement cannot be treated in isolation. We have a tendency to want to to just go to the Bible and and demand that it answers a particular narrow question uh, relative to a doctrinal formulation that's taken place over time. Whereas actual fact, I think what the history of theology does is it, it gives you a genealogy for any particular idea. And when you come to study the the doctrine of limited atonement, in the way in which it came to be formulated in the 17th century, you realize that it cannot be treated in isolation. It has connections to predestination, self-evidently so. It also has significant connection to Trinitarianism and Christology. One of the issues with which the Reformed are wrestling at the start of the 17th century is, is how Christ can be said to be mediator according to both natures. Roman Catholic theologians uh, uh, were were very concerned to emphasize that Christ could only be mediator uh, according to his human nature because it made no sense for God to be the mediating point between God and creation. It would imply that God somehow became less than God to do that. The Reformers placed a great emphasis upon Christ mediating as a person. Mediation is an act. And it's persons who act, not natures. And so that meant that one could only ever discuss the acts of the person of Christ as mediator once one had resolved that first question about how is it that Christ, the incarnate God man, can be mediator? And that requires that the the, for want of the better word, the mechanism by which Christ's humiliation can take place be connected to to all aspects of his priestly office. So one cannot talk about the atonement without talking about the humiliation of Christ. And one cannot talk about the humiliation of Christ without talking about the covenant of redemption in eternity, which you won't find the phrase in the Bible, but it was the concept that theologians in the, 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 the early 17th century developed to explain how it could be that, The second person of the Trinity could undergo, for example, what is described in the Bible in Philippians 2. So the burden of my chapter on that level was to to show that you may want to ask the question, is limited atonement biblical or not? But the first task is to understand why the church came to think about the atonement in the way it did, and that requires connecting the atonement to the Incarnation and the Incarnation to the doctrine of the Trinity
2: and and can i just uh, i mean that's excellent can i just add that i mean without in any way claiming that this book goes anywhere near owen's uh definitive treatment which i think it, i think it is um that's why we felt it's vitally important that a a new treatment of this this topic of this topic has four sections historical biblical theological pastoral because what we're trying to do is deliberately move beyond uh biblicism simply quoting texts uh you know the universal sounding texts. you've got limited sounding texts and what we're intending is not I and mean, we we use in in the introduction and three different images for how we imagine the, the book to work it's it's like a house it's like a web it's like a map and i mean in terms of the house image rather than the four sections of the book being four separate windows that you look through to see the doctrine, we're imagining actually that you open the door and walk in to the house, and the four uh, sections of the book, if you like, are the four mezzanine levels of the of the one house where definite atonement lives. In other words, uh, when you understand church history, then you will read the Bible more richly. When you understand the way theologians have tried to put different strands of the exegetical evidence together, and you wrestle with that. Then you come back to the Bible and read it more richly. And I think Carl's chapter on Owen and Baxter is a really good example of that. That this is not two theologians simply trading text with each other, but actually an overarching framework that may or not may or may not be faithful to the Bible, but which is there and has to be wrestled with.
3: And in that in that sense, if I can just add, I think people from a distance will look at this book and think, "Oh, there's just another edited volume." you know 21 individual chapters that don't really interact or relate in that sense it really is quite a unique book we we had quite a lot of interaction between contributors between editors and contributors to ensure that the house was standing <laughs> strong at the end if that makes sense mm-hmm. to to ensure that everything was actually sinking um, and people yeah. were complimenting each other, etc. there are some differences there, yeah, are, there are differences, differences yeah. but it's you know it it is an edited volume that is quite unique, and our opening chapter is trying to be an essay that helps you read hopefully the Bible better on definite atonement, but also helps you read this book as a whole book and not just individual chapters within it
4: and I think one of the things worth mentioning as well is the the level of argument that one finds in the popular rejection of limited atonement is really very poor. Now, if you look mm-hmm. at somebody like Mark Driscoll, for example, who's able to, to dismiss it in just a few pages, as if slapping down a couple of universal sounding proof texts uh, is enough to deal with the issue. Well, you know, John Owen was a master of the biblical languages. Uh, he was a master exegete. It's unlikely that he was unaware of those biblical texts. It's unlikely that he was, that he was unaware of the challenge they posed for his articulation of of limited atonement, and that should set alarm bells ringing in people's minds. This was a doctrine that took shape over many decades or centuries. It is finely tooled and intricate. It simply can't be dismissed by these very simplistic popular treatments that one finds.
0: Well, while we're on the subject, um, Jonathan or David, I'm wondering if you could tell us about uh, Dr. Schreiner's uh, contribution here where he does take up those problematic texts. What are some of the texts that are sticking points uh, to people accepting this doctrine, and, and how does Dr. Schreiner address those?
3: Um, well, his chapter is, uh, in that sense, rather polemical. It's really just addressing all the problematic texts that you find uh, in discussions on um, limited atonement, definite atonement. So he deals with 1 Timothy 2. Uh, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Uh, Titus 2, 11 to 14, salvation has appeared for all people. Um, 2 Peter 2, 1, uh, referring to the false teachers who deny the master who bought them. Um, Agarazzo, the, the Greek word there, redeem, is um, uh, to buy is used of uh, Christians in the New Testament being purchased by Christ's blood. Um Two Peter three nine, uh, God is patient, not willing that any should perish, but that everyone should come to repentance. And then Hebrews two nine, uh, Christ tasted death for everyone. And so what Tom Schreiner does in that chapter is really meticulously goes through each of those texts and carefully exegetes them in their literary historical contexts and basically exposes, he's not trying to argue that these texts prove definite atonement. Far from it. What he's just trying to say is they don't disprove definite atonement when you actually understand them in their contexts. To take one example is uh, 2 Peter 2.1. He basically shows that what happens in that chapter is that the false teachers later on in the chapter are spoken of phenomenologically as believers at one point. And so he's saying that it's quite normal and logical for uh, Peter to write uh, about the false teachers in categories that you would describe a Christian in. You know, yeah. they, they were bought by Christ. At one point in their life, as professing baptized members of a church community, you could say, of course, Christ died for them. Um, and so he he sort of very carefully uh, shows that in that context, the phenomenological language makes perfect sense. But that does not prove um, that Christ actually propitiated the Father's wrath for the false teachers. Because if he, if he did, then you have the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints comes into play. Well, if they were then saved at one point, purchased by christ do they lose their salvation you know so again back to sort of carl's point these things are all connected in a web or in a network of um, connections theologically
0: jonathan tell us about uh, you know paul's atonement theology you have the chapter here the 12th one for whom did christ die um, describe for us as as you can in a thumbnail sketch, uh, particularism and universalism as we find it in the Pauline epistles and, and even in an you, Acts.
2: You've bitten off more than you can chew there, Cameron, <laughs> I think, I think Johnny's two, Johnny's two chapters, I think it took him weeks to whittle them down to whatever length they were. So, um, good luck to you. Yeah.
3: It's, it's one of the joys of being an editor. You can make them as long as you want.
2: <laughs> um, <laughs>
3: Well, so the two chapters really hang together. So what I found in Paul was that his atonement theology is comprised of, uh, at the risk of oversimplification, four groups of texts. Particularistic texts, Christ's death for his people, for us, for me. Uh, Secondly, uh, universalistic texts, Christ's death for an undefined, ambiguous group of people. Christ died for many, for all, for the world. Uh, For want of a better term, perishing texts, Christ's death for the false teachers, Acts 20, 28, or Christ's death for a brother um, who may finally perish, uh, 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans uh, 14, the brother with a weak conscience. Um, So you've got those three groups of texts, and that's what my first chapter deals with, for whom did Christ die? where I basically exegete each of those texts as carefully as I can. And what I argue for is that rather than compromising uh, the doctrine of definite atonement, when you look at the universalistic and the perishing texts, they're actually complementary to it. Uh, The Words many, all, and world cannot, in their contexts, mean everyone in each each, uh, text. It just logically doesn't make sense or it causes theological dissonance in other parts of Paul's theology, if you say that the word many, all world means everyone. That's the first chapter. But what I'm basically saying there is that um, in discussions of the intent and nature of the atonement, what normally happens is what I call a textual quid pro quo, a sort of tit-for-tat, you know, the Calvinist, comes to the table and he presents all the particularistic texts and then the Arminian and Amaraldian and hypothetical universalist comes to the table and they present all the universalistic texts and the discussion sort of just goes back and forward with this sort of textual tit for tat and it all, it normally ends in an impasse and what I've tried to argue for in my second chapter is that we need to understand the atonement in Paul in a larger theological framework and that is to understand his more his soteriological framework so his atonement theology is not just comprised of those three sets of texts there's a fourth group of texts what I've called the doctrinal loci texts these are texts that concern various doctrines that impinge on Paul's atonement theology for example, doctrines like eschatology, election, union with Christ, Christology, Trinitarianism, doxology. Uh, those are the ones I deal with. There's other ones like covenant theology, ecclesiology, sacramentology. But what I argue for in that second chapter is that when you analyze the doctrinal loci texts that impinge on Paul's atonement theology and you hold them all together together, Uh, Paul's atonement theology cannot point in any other direction except a definite atonement. Um, So I look at five aspects of the saving work of God in Paul's theology. Uh, The saving work of God is indivisible. Uh, What I show there is that Paul paints uh, the atonement or sorry, uh, Christ's Uh, redemption on four, on on an eschatological canvas, and he presents four distinct but inseparable moments of redemption. Redemption predestined, redemption accomplished, applied, and consummated. And those four moments of redemption are never collapsed into each other, but neither are they ever separated. And when you look at the atonement texts in Paul, you'll find at least two or three and sometimes four of those moments of redemption present. But Paul never collapses one into the other, and he never separates them either. And so that's the first point, that the saving work of God in Christ is indivisible. And I'm sort of playing on Augustine's maxim, the external works of the Trinity are indivisible. Um, Then there's the election that is... um, That sort of drives the whole redemption process. You have union with Christ that encompasses Paul's atonement theology. Then you have Trinitarian nature of the saving work of God in Christ, where Father, Son, and Spirit work harmoniously together um, to bring about the salvation. And then uh, fifthly, uh, the saving work of God in Christ is doxological. I Use Ephesians 1 3 to 14 as my sort of paradigm text where I find those five aspects of the saving work of God in Christ. And the fifth one, the glorious, the doxological, is that phrase that we all know for the praise of his own glory. What's interesting is that Paul ties that phrase to three of the four moments of redemption, to redemption predestined. Redemption applied and redemption consummated, and I argue that that may well be the greatest obstacle um, to a limit to an unlimited atonement. Uh, atonement that does not atone cannot bring glory to God. But Paul's whole point in Ephesians one is that God's redemptive purposes that are planned in eternity past affect. In the history of the world, are for His own glory, and so He is glorified when the atonement actually produces its effect. So that's really what my chapter is about: the glorious, indivisible, Trinitarian work of God in Christ. Mm. Um, I tried to look at Paul, um, you know, comprehensively, and at each of the points of those five key aspects of the saving work of God in Christ, I engage with other presentations of the intent and nature of the atonement, namely Arminianism, Amaraldianism, and variant forms of hypothetical universalism.
1: That's that's excellent. You can tell from just how we're speaking on even one essay, each of these essays could be a full episode, and, and each worth the price of the book, too. And um, Some of the, the thoughts that you were giving on... Um, Paul's theology, in particular, it's a good segue into the the third section, which is definite atonement in theological perspective. And I'm thinking particularly here of uh, Letham's article, uh, "The Triune God, Incarnation, and Definite Atonement." That seems to be a good complement to much of what we've been saying, especially with with Carl's article on Owen and some of the things that you were saying on Paul. Um, can Can someone give just a, a brief overview of what Letham is trying to do from, I guess, a systematic perspective on? Uh, Trinity, Incarnation, and Definite Atonement.
2: Sure, I I think he he basically takes as his starting point what Johnny was outlining there—the um, classic uh, formula of the external works of the Trinity are undivided—and he uh, s- says that if you if you take that from your starting point, that necessarily will have an impact on the kind of conception of the atonement that you have. And he looks at three alternative models of the atonement three views of well three views of a kind of unlimited atonement each of which impact negatively on that uh uh, received maxim of trinitarian thinking so uh, he looks at uh where you have the or, or Amaro's view where you have the conception of christ dying on the cross with the intention of saving all people but the father who foresees that not all would believe and so elects some to salvation. And uh, Letham tries to show how that necessarily will introduce discord into Trinitarian relations. And he does the same with hypothetical universalism. Uh, He then treats the the Torrance brothers, James Torrance uh, and Tom Torrance, and and separately tries to show in, in James Torrance's case, he ends up inverting... Um, divine attributes, God's mercy and God's justice get uh, messed out of place and argues, I think perhaps in, in a, this is maybe where um, you know, we're hoping there'll be some good engagement with the book afterwards because of the significance of the Torrance's views and Tom Torrance in particular over here in Scotland remains an uh, uh, incredibly influential and significant uh, thinker but he, he argues that once you work from this starting place of Uh, the external works of the Trinity are undivided and you see a a close Trinitarian harmony that points necessarily towards definite atonement. He charges Tom Torrance with theological incoherence uh, at the end of having worked through all the different ways in which Torrance speaks about the atonement. So uh, I I think you're right to link, uh, in a way, Johnny's chapter to Lethem. You've got an exegetical treatment and Lethem, if you like, builds on it to a kind of theological analysis that uh, again, I hope it's going to be uh, extremely interesting for the reader.
0: That's fascinating. We also have a, a chapter here on the the double payment argument. What, in in short, what is that argument for the listeners that might not be familiar with this idea of of double payment? And what's the problem with it?
3: Yeah, it, the it,
0: argument, but the idea that you might have to double yeah. pay.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it was first used by Gottschalk, who sort of said, "Well, if Christ." has paid the penalty for sin, then God cannot punish that sin again at, at the la, on the last day. And therefore, since there is a hell where people are present being punished for their sins, Christ could not have actually been punished for those sins since that would be unjust. Now, that, that argument really came to a maturation in the, in the Reformation period with the, some of the scholastic Reformed thinkers it it was actually uh, quite strongly refuted by a number of thinkers over over the years. Even people like Robert Dabney didn't like the argument, thought it was a really poor argument. And the reason being is they, are, they would say, well, what it presents is, <clears throat> and this sort of connects with Carl's chapter on Owen and Baxter, it presents a view of Christ's atonement that ipso facto justifies people, the moment Christ paid the atonement, uh, made the atonement. So, if Christ paid the atonement on the cross, um, are the elect born uh, children of wrath? Exactly. Because if if the payment has already been made, how can God still be angry at them? Now, it's a it's a very good uh, it's a it's a fair point to to raise. You know, does the atonement ipso facto? by its very reality justify people at the moment it was made Um, and so you have the whole issues of eternal justification things like that and Gary Williams chapter in this um, book is uh, for me one of the highlights of the whole book. Uh, Gary's both chapters are just um, written at such a superb level and with such high quality I think they're irrefutable and His one on double payment is just such a careful treatment where he exposes, yes, some of the weaknesses of understanding Christ's payment as a commercial payment. But he doesn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, if you like. He doesn't get rid of the commercial metaphor because he says the commercial metaphor is present in Scripture. What he argues is we just need to understand it better and basically he comes to the view that um th- that within the covenant the pactum salutis there is a delay between the payment being made and the execution of that payment or, or the effect or the application of that payment and he comes back to John Owen actually who you know showed that there was this delay that when Uh, the the judge can decide when he will apply the payment that has been received. And it is that delay that is the key point that allows the double payment to still be a legitimate way to argue for definite atonement.
0: Precisely. I think this is coming up often now in in present discussions, especially on justification, and we're finding people that are presenting various forms of justification, active and passive justification, or objective and subjective. And I think many of these questions that people struggle with stem from a failure to grasp the distinction between Historia and Ordo Salutis. And I know those yeah. are categories that have that have come up with and a little bit and have been used by Reformed Biblical uh, theologians of a more recent vintage. However, you have to distinguish, not only in the pactum salutis, the agreement for Christ to accomplish redemption, the Spirit to apply it, um, but also the fact that there is a real transition from wrath to grace. Ephesians 2, 5-7 through 7 is very clear on this, Is just one example. We are objects of wrath, and I, I think the beautiful thing we find in the Westminster Standards, especially chapter 11, section 4, speaks about the fact that although... Christ died for the elect, and their sins have been paid for, they are not yet justified until they have faith. And it is by faith that we receive uh, the imputed righteousness of Christ, and that is the ground of justification, for instance. So to see your book tying these many things up through the doctrine of definite atonement, both in theological and historical perspective, just goes to reinforce once again and it's so significant for contemporary discussions that are not particularly or or um, exclusively about definite atonement, that this doctrine touches upon many other things and especially contemporary debates going on now where we might not originally expect them.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, one, one interesting thing is – this is uh, – Uh, a very different theological issue than the one you've just been speaking about, but it shows exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. Johnny and I, Johnny and I both started the book as Baptists and finished as Peter Baptists. Oh, wow. Um, and speaking
3: with David, I was probably already. Well,
2: yeah, I, yeah, you were just keeping it secret. Yeah.
4: Um, yeah, Was like, that the like case Car- for
2: Carl as well, or no? Like Carl did, that's right. Until the money came knocking for Carl, that's right.
4: <laughs> yeah, the Free Church of Scotland, they don't have pay well. That's right,
2: that's right. But even there, you know, um, and again, I'll just, I will just—I would just throw that out for the listener as a teaser. I mean, what possible connection does definite atonement have to uh, your view of baptism? But actually, I mean, you'll see in the, in the book, Stephen Wellham has an essay of uh, which you know exemplifies new covenant thinking to uh, reform Baptist thinking about how to put the Bible together and see definite, human, which we uh, we think his essay is essays a fantastically rich uh, contribution, but obviously we would put certain texts together in a different way. Um, you'll see in our acknowledgements uh, at the start of the book about uh, why we feel it's appropriate to dedicate a volume like this to our children to use uh uh, and we have a quote from uh, French Reformed Baptismal Liturgy that talks about Christ dying for you, little child, little one. And I, I can remember wrestling at certain points over the years with being Baptist, holding to definite atonement, and thinking, can I say to my children, Christ died for you? Now, I think actually that is very difficult to do within a Reformed Baptist framework, but it is very right and fitting and proper to do within a classic reformed framework. Um, So, yeah, that's just one thing that came to mind. I think even that issue is connected to this particular issue of the atonement because it's all connected to how you put the whole Bible together and your view of covenant and so on.
3: Yeah, a a phrase that I came across years ago would sort of encapsulate the book as I sort of read each of the essays, and that is that no doctrine is an island. Right. You know that that's what that's something really struck home to me, editing this book and writing two chapters in it. Is everything is connected, and it's about trying to work out what those connections are, and trying to be faithful to texts of scripture within their context, but trying to synthesize internally related doctrines that impinge on the atonement, um, and to come up with a coherent view of the intent and nature of the atonement. And I think definite atonement is the most coherent position to hold on the intent and nature of the atonement uh, from that perspective that all these doctrines are connected.
1: Yeah, that's very helpful. And, um, I think it was so helpful to include the the last section here. I know, um, really we're, we're closing here, but just wanted to mention and give a nod, especially to the to last section, because some of these things that we're talking about can sound maybe a little abstract and, and technical, but, um, where these hit home is um, really what, what Carl mentioned in the beginning um, for the people in the pew who are struggling with certain questions is the background to um, at least approaching some answer for them. So um, section four, definite atonement in pastoral practice. There's three chapters here. Um, 21 is slain for the world. uh, The uncomfortability of the unevangelized for a universal atonement by Daniel strange. We have uh, a chapter by Sinclair Ferguson on blessed assurance. Jesus is mine definite atonement, and the cure of souls. And then um, the last chapter is uh, by John Piper, and it's called My Glory I Will Not Give uh, to Another, Preaching the Fullness of Definite Atonement to the Glory of God. And again, I know we're we're short on time here, but um, do you all want to just give a, a brief uh, overview of what's going on here in this last section on pastoral practice?
2: Sure. I, it's basically three big issues of mission, Daniel Strange's chapter, uh, assurance of salvation, St. Um, preaching, uh, John Piper's, uh, Dan tries to turn the tables uh, really on people who argue that if you hold to a limited atonement or definite atonement, then you're cutting the nerve of world missions, you're uh, stopping your people evangelizing. And uh, again, uh, through engagement with Owen, uh, Dan tries to say, no, it's exact, It's exactly the opposite. Only if you hold to a definite atonement do you really have uh, strong grounds for a universal offer. Uh, Sinclair's chapter looks at John MacLeod Campbell, who was deposed uh, from the Ministry Church of Scotland Ministry uh, for denying uh, definite atonement and looks at uh, his strong attack. Uh, It's interesting, Packer and Ferguson both say that the strongest attack on penal substitution has come from MacLeod Campbell, not from the Sassanians, but actually from MacLeod Campbell. And uh, he saw that to Uh, believe in penal substitution was necessarily to believe in definite atonement. So actually McLeod Campbell, an opponent, uh, saw the issues very clearly. So uh, Ferguson takes up the kind of things that McLeod Campbell was looking at. He he was a, a parish minister who was looking at his people struggling with assurance and was basically saying that one of the causes of this is because they believe in our church teaches definite atonement. And if we get rid of that, then our people will have assurance in Sinclair. Uh, tries to show why that's not the case. I I think it's an excellent chapter. And Piper's uh, chapter is what does it mean to actually preach definite atonement? Why and how should we do that? Um, And I guess quite typically for Piper, it's connected to uh, only this particular view of the atonement gives God most and greatest glory. Mm.
0: That's that's so helpful. Once again, to see that they're all, These doctrinal issues are connected to one another, but also that they're connected to the concerns of the people in the pew. Um, And these are important day-to-day issues that demonstrate that theology done correctly um, has everything to do with our daily lives. Uh, and so significant. And um, I'm so thankful, of, one, for you editing this volume and Carl for contributing to it, uh, but also for you guys uh, taking the time today to join us. Thanks so much for joining us and uh, contributing and uh, sharing this with our listeners.
2: You're very welcome. It's been great to be with a pleasure. you.
3: Yeah. yeah, thanks very much for the discussion.
2: Yeah, well, yeah thanks,
4: Kevin.
0: We appreciate it. We want to point people back to our website and say you can visit us online at reformedforum.org. There you'll find information about all of our programs as well as uh, upcoming programs, but we do encourage you to get a hold of this book titled From Heaven He Came and Sought Her, Definite Atonement in Historical, Biblical, Theological, and Pastoral Perspective, of course edited by David Gibson and Jonathan Gibson, published by Crossway. Uh, We want to thank everybody for listening, and we hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center.